0: Vasudeva Sutam Devam, Kamsacharno Ramadanam, Deva Ki Paramanandam, Krishnam Vande Jagad Gurum. So, welcome back to the Bhagavad Gita class. We had a one month break. So just to remind everybody, we have, um, we have been studying the 7th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita and we completed that last time. I think we're entering the 8th um, chapter. And remember that one general way of making an outline of the Bhagavad Gita, according to some scholars, is that the 18 chapters can be roughly divided into three parts of six chapters each. The first six chapters were about the self, about ourselves. The next six chapters, where we are right now, is about God, the ultimate reality of this universe, uh, of the God of religion, basically. And the last six chapters will show us how we and God are the same reality. The Vedantic, the great sentence, Mahavakya Tatvam Asi, that thou art, uh, that thou art. Is Saguna Brahman or Ishvara or God? Twam is you, us. And what is the then the identity that thou art? That is the identity of the individual and the cosmic of the jiva, the sentient being and ishvara of God, that will be expressed in the last six chapters. But it's a very rough way of putting it because you find Vedantic inquiry in the first six chapters, again in the last six chapters, but it's also true that to some extent, these middle six chapters, from chapter seven onwards, uh, they are are mostly about, there's a preponderance of devotion, there's a preponderance of theism, and we will see more of that in this particular chapter. Before we go into this chapter, it's a short chapter, and the central takeaway from this uh, chapter, from the eighth chapter, is that... Um, one must remember God at the time of death. So that's the If you want to take one line takeaway from this chapter, the importance of being centered in God at the time of death. And therefore, in order to be centered in God at the point of death, (death means physical death, you must uh, remain God-conscious throughout. We must try to remain God-conscious throughout our lives. So that is the teaching. Uh, At the point of death, one must be centered in God, uh, in awareness of God. Uh, One must feel the presence of God. One one must focus one's mind. Focus one's mind means there is focus there, there is memory there, there is emotion there. So focus is what are you concentrating on, if anything at all? God. What are you remembering? I mean, you're bringing all your learning, your understanding, your lifelong devotion into bearing there. And then what are your feelings? Uh, Love and surrender and reverence and all of that. That focus must be there at the point of death. That's the central teaching of this chapter. The occasion for this chapter is a few technical terms cleverly inserted by Krishna. If you remember the seventh chapter, the very end of the seventh chapter, which is the, uh, the 30th verse, at the very end of the seventh chapter, in the 29th and 30th verses sri krishna mentions certain certain technical terms suddenly and obviously uh, arjuna has questions about those terms and he asks those questions so those questions are the beginning of the eighth chapter but what were those terms what uh, what uh, excited arjuna's cu- uh, curiosity shubhadip says shubha navavarsha okay so today is an especially auspicious day, it is uh, um, a Bengali New Year in India, it is Good Friday, uh, so uh, yeah, and this whole week is actually auspicious, uh, we're culminating in Easter, there was Palm Sunday on last Sunday and then culminating in Easter uh, this Sunday. So Shubhanava to everybody, which means Happy New Year, Bengali New Year to everybody. <laughs> 29th verse of the 7th chapter, if you see the last line, Te brahma tad vidu kritsnam karma chakilam. So those who strive for freedom from decay and death, they take refuge in me, know that Brahman, all about the, the uh, embodied self and action. So these are three terms, Brahman, adhyatma, we'll see what it means. Um, literally, if you translate it, means the inner self. Karma. It literally, it means action. Three terms. And then the next verse introduces three more terms. The last verse of the seventh chapter. Saadhi bhutam adhidaivam maam saadhi So, the fourth term is uh, adhi The fifth term is adhidaivam. And the sixth term is adhi what do these terms mean? Literally, we'll see the meaning later on, Krishna will explain. Literally, if you see these terms mean, adibhuta means the reality about all beings. You know, what are these beings? And then Adidaiva means the reality about all the devatas of gods, the deities. adiyagya means all the, yagya literally is the sacrifice, Vedic sacrifices, all religious rituals. What's the point of all of them? What's behind all of that? Whom are we worshipping? Where is it going to? So Adhiyagya means, literally it means that which underlies uh, all religious ritualism. Adhibhuta means that which underlies all things in this world, living and non-living. And Adhidaiva means that which is the reality of all the deities worshipped in uh, in religion. All right. Then, at the end, Krishna mentions something those who attain liberation at the time of physical death and they keep their minds on me so now this also interests Arjuna now Arjuna is going to ask questions all of these things which Krishna said at the very end of the 7th chapter and then he stopped and then Arjuna naturally and we are also interested so what are all these things you just said 8th chapter it starts with Arjuna's question. Arjuna wacha Kintad Brahmakimadhyatmam Kinkarma purushottama? Adhi Chakim Proktam Adhi Devam Kimu Arjuna asks this question. What is that Brahman? One. What is that Adhyatma? Two? And what is that karma? Three. O oh, best of men, what is called Adhibhuta, Four. And what is said to be the Adideva? Fifth. Then one more question. Number two, verse number two. Adhiyagya katham kotra dehis <laughs> min madhusudana prayarna kalecha katham genyosinia bhi what is this adhiyagya in this body, O oh, slayer of Madhu, that is Krishna? And how are you known at the time of death by those who practice self-restraint, who practice spiritual disciplines? Notice, seven questions. Seven questions. Six, they deal with the six terms suddenly introduced by Krishna. And the seventh one deals with death. How can we maintain a spiritual attitude, devotional um, devotional uh, bhava. Bhava is a Sanskrit word which means attitude, uh, focus, uh, being centered. How can we remain centered at the point of death? The six terms are, what is Brahman, first? Second is, what is um, uh, Adhyatma, second? Third is, what is Adhibhuta? Uh, fourth is, what is um, the Adhiyagya, and the fifth one is uh, what is uh, the Adi Bhuta, Deva, and then Adiyagya. That's the sixth one. And the seventh one is Prayanakalya, the time of death. How do yogis meditate? Keep their minds on you. So these seven questions. I think that was particularly clever of Krishna to introduce these suddenly puzzling terms at the end of the chapter. And he knows that Arjuna is going to ask questions. Like all of us, we are also, we become curious. um, What are these things? What should we know about them? But as you shall see, they are basic terms of Vedanta. And uh, just the the terms used a little old, Vedic terms, more than later Vedantic terms. We'll see now. Now Krishna is going to answer those questions. Shri Bhagavanu Aksharam Brahma Paramam Bhuta Visarga Karma Sangita The highest imperishable principle is Brahman. Its existence is the embodied soul is called Adhyatma and the offering unto the sacrificial fire which causes the origin and development of beings is called action. Alright, three questions have been answered here. First, he says, the first question was, what is Brahman? He just mentioned Brahman. What is Brahman? Aksharam paramam brahma. He is cryptic here, but then we know enough of Vedanta to know what he is talking about. The ultimate reality, the undecaying reality, uh, eternal reality is Brahman. The word Brahman itself, oh, by the way, before I uh, go any further, This chapter is called Akshara Brahma Yoga. So the name comes from the teaching given by Krishna here. The first two verses are questions from Arjuna. So it's it's not named after those questions. But when Krishna starts teaching, the first words he says, Aksharam Brahma. So that's how the chapter takes its name. Akshara here has two meanings. One meaning of Akshara is letters, you know, like... Uh, the English we have the alphabet A B C D and so on the Sanskrit alphabet, but that's not what it's meant here because immediately it adds, adds paramam which means transcendent or supreme. So the other meaning of akshara is the undecaying. Shara means that which decays. Akshara, which means that which does not decay, that which does not change, the eternal. Um, and one must remember this Brahman which is eternal is not a thing which persists through time. That when moment we hear eternal, we think something that lives for a pretty long time, you know, it just, just goes on and on and on, eternal. Not in that sense. It's something that is um, beyond time. Time does not apply to it. Time and space and causation do not apply to it. So the question might be, so what are you saying? It's not eternal? That means it's temporary. This is the reason why words like eternal are used. In order to um, make sure that we don't fall into the idea of thinking like all things come and pass away. So Brahman is not like that and therefore eternal. But really speaking, it's only after you accept time, then you say Brahman is eternal. Only after you accept space, then you say Brahman is all-pervading. It's only after you accept all objects, everything in this universe, then you say Brahman is non-dual. Nothing is apart from Brahman. But in itself, you can't say anything about it. Without time, space and object, there is no way of talking about it. It is beyond language. Even the term Brahma, which is used all throughout Vedanta, literally it means the vast. The Sanskrit derivation is Brihatva, datma, don't have to bother about the Sanskrit. It just means it's vast. The etymology, it's, it means that which, which expands without limit. That's the precise etymological meaning of the root of the term Brahma. The vast. The vast what? A vast sky, a vast wealth, a vast what? Nothing without any, any qualification. It doesn't say. So when you just say vast without any qualification, it means uh, the infinite. Uh, nothing is excluded from that. So, Brahman, etymologically, it also means the infinite, limitless. Um, and that Brahman is talked about throughout the Upanishads, that there is an ultimate reality of this universe, which is, uh, which is being itself, which is awareness itself, uh, which is, uh, which is the, some, the, the culmination of all value. I know I have not used this language earlier, but I am, and I'm aware, and I'm seeking. So what your this, your isness is Brahman. Your awareness itself is Brahman. And what you're seeking, what everybody, and anything and everybody, what we are all going towards, human beings, and all living beings, and this entire non-living universe, it's all it's rushing towards its culmination. And that is Brahman. That is, that is ananda, the bliss itself. Not that it exists, it is existence itself. It's more than, ex- exi- more than an existing thing. Just like and these sound like, you know, um, vague philosophical words. They are not vague, actually. They have a very precise meaning. When I say it's not something that exists more than existence, it's just like use the old uh, gold and ornaments example. If I say, so somebody who does not understand what gold is, gold is not an ornament. It's not a necklace or a tiara or a ring or something. But gold is more important than more is more real than any of the ornaments. Isn't that true? Because all these ornaments are made of gold in that sense. Similarly, existence itself is more important than any existing thing, is greater than any existing thing. Uh, Then awareness. See, it's not just existence. When we look at ourselves, I am and I'm aware. I am and I'm aware. And this awareness in itself, not awareness of something, not a particular incident or experience of awareness. When we talk about awareness, we, we always talk about uh, in consciousness studies, for example, if you ask, what do you study? Oh, perception, you hear, smell, taste, touch, you think, you remember, uh, you, you uh, enjoy, you suffer. So this is all, all awareness. Yes, but these are instances of awareness. Just as Existing things are instances of existence. These are instances of awareness. Awareness in itself is Brahman. And there is such a thing as awareness in itself. Uh, From a Vedantic perspective, it's just like saying, if you ask somebody, oh, gold is not an ornament, so there's no such thing as gold. Well, the answer would be, there is only gold. It's doubtful whether there is something called an ornament, apart from the gold. The gold is the reality. Similarly, awareness is the reality of all our experiences in life. And then, this this urge for fulfillment which we have, which is why we are here in Vedanta, which is why we do anything from earning money, to having relationships, to accumulating, uh, to to fighting wars, to um, religion and politics and economics, all of that, we are trying to get fulfillment. And ultimate fulfillment, the unlimited fulfillment is Brahman, is Ananda. It is the culmination of all our efforts at fulfillment because it's unlimited existence awareness. That is Ananda. This Sat-Chit-Ananda, being itself, awareness itself, joy itself or fulfillment itself, that is Brahman. And this is what Krishna says, Aksharam Paramam. The transcendent, non-decaying being, reality is Brahman. All right. Next question. Krishna used the term Adhyatma, literally if you translate, inner reality. So what's within? And he says, "Swabhava adhyatma mityate. This very Brahman, when it's your reality, it's Adhyatma. See, this Brahman, if you say it is all-pervading, then it must be in me. I am within this universe, so this Brahman must be in me also. It it must be here. So the Brahman which is here, in you, that is the Swabhava. Swabhava literally means the existence within oneself. Here it's used in a technical term. Uh, Existence of that ultimate reality within oneself. Swabhava. Let me put it this way. There is one absolute reality. Now, when, because of Maya, because of that extraordinary power of Maya, that absolute reality itself appears as a mind, in technical terms, upadhi. I will not explain it here, I've explained it earlier, upadhi. I mean, there is an English translation which makes it even more complicated. Upadhi is, they call it an adjunct. Um, But it's just an appearance. You, you remember the example I've sometimes used of a crystal and a red flower behind it, a colorless crystal. But if I put a red flower behind it, um, the colorless crystal will look red without actually becoming red. So here you have this, let's call it, Call this a colorless crystal. If you look at me, and then when I put this orange robe behind it, look how it, see, this is what, what it normally looks like. The moment I put this behind it, look, it looks, it looks orange. It looks uh, saffron. Nothing has happened to it. It's just the same. So because of the upadhi. Now, this saffron, this, this orange robe is called the upadhi, which by its own presence distorts our perception of the crystal. So, by the presence of the upadhi of the mind, technically and again Vedanta, the terms would be antakkarana upadhi. It's not just mind, it's mind and intellect and memory and ego, our entire inner instrument. When that appears, why does it appear? Maya, remember, it appears uh, in Brahman. That same Brahman, through that mind, the presence of the mind, just like the presence of this, that Brahman now becomes a knower. It, It becomes I, individual knower. And in that Brahman, when names and forms appear, what names and forms? Table, chair, body. All these forms and names appear. Then that Brahman now appears as existing things. It appears as existing things. Now two kinds of things have come up. Subject and object. Same Brahman, through the upadhi of the mind, is now the subject. You, us. And the same Brahman, through the upadhi of names and forms, is all existing things. And now what does the subject do? Subject becomes a knower, and it knows objects. And that's our experience of the universe. You see, hear, smell, taste, touch, you think, you want, you hate. And that is the subject. But really, what is the subject? Brahman. Really, what is the object? Brahman. Why does it look like a subject? Why does it behave like a subject? Because of the upadhi of the mind, the presence of the mind. Why does it look like an object? Why why can you experience Brahman as an object? Because of the appearance of the upadhi of names and forms. What names and forms? All names and forms. Basically the entire universe. Swami Vivekananda put it so simply. I have often repeated this. He says one alone exists. It appears as nature, soul. Nature is object. Soul is subject. Subject and object are actually the same, Brahman. Again, not very difficult to understand. Consider our own dreams. When we dream, we are there in our own dreams. We are walking around, talking, having experiences. And we are experiencing people and places. And when we wake up, what happens? We realize, oh, because of the dream, I, the dreamer, became the subject and the object in the dream. Whatever I saw in the dream was I alone, my mind. And I, the guy in that dream, I was this mind alone. So this mind alone became, the dreaming mind alone became by itself two things, subject and object, and it experienced itself in the dream. Isn't that a fair way of um, you know, describing what a dream really is? So exactly, so that's a dream in the, in the mind in, when we go to sleep. But what's happening here in the waking state, it is this Brahman, which appears as subject and object. Now, when you look at the subject, we, Arjuna, the disciple, is a subject, and Krishna, when he's speaking, is a subject. We are also listening. We are the subjects. We are individuals. Now, the question is, that Brahman you spoke about, what is the subject? What's the relation to to that ultimate reality? Krishna is saying, you are that ultimate reality, but you are appearing through the prism, through the upadhi, through the prism of uh, a particular mind. So, the minds are different. Minds are many. And that's why we seem to be many. So, this is the answer to the second question. What is the second question? You use the term Adhyatma. What is Adhyatma? What is the inner reality? Inner reality is Brahman, is existence, consciousness, place. Then the third question, karma. He asks, what is karma? And um, um, he answers, So, all the mass of actions which take place in the entire universe, starting from the creation of the universe down to what it is today, all the mass of actions that we undertake, all of this is karma. Basically, the answer he gives is, it is cause and effect, it is causality. See, this universe is not just there is existence and consciousness, there are names and forms, but there is action going on. Things are happening in this universe. And when actions are done deliberately by us sentient beings, they have effects and those effects give rise to the future of this universe. I will repeat that from a Vedantic standpoint and not just a Vedantic standpoint, any religious standpoint, this universe is not meaningless. So every religion will say there is a point to the existence of this universe. And the point is you, that um, this whole universe is a consequence of the activities of sentient beings. God, according, just like any religion, Vedanta also will say, there is God. God has created this universe. But how? Randomly? Arbitrarily? No. Uh, It is according to the patterns of actions that we have set up to to give the results of those actions to us. Good actions, good results, bad actions, bad results, mixed actions, mixed results. And we go from lifetime to lifetime propelled by our past actions. This is what is going on. God is enabling all this to happen. But why? What's the point of all of this? The point of it is ultimate um, liberation, enlightenment and liberation. So, this is the worldview. Also, remember, this is like a conventional worldview. If you ask an, an Advaitin, really, is this what is happening? Is a world, is a God who has created it, and we are all there, we are experiencing the results of our karma, and one day we will attain some kind of blissful release. The Advaitin will actually smile and say, you know, if you press me for an answer, no. None of this is happening. Brahman alone is real. All this happening, what you call it, this is like a movie playing on Brahman. Yeah. But from a conventional perspective, we want an explanation of this world. The world is, is meant as a, a part of our spiritual journey. Um, so karma is the fuel for this. Whatever we have done in past lives has given rise to this life. And not just individuals, all of us together uh, millions and billions of sentient beings, we, whatever work we have done in, in our human births or as this, um, where we are agents of action. In lower births, we are not agents. We only get results of past actions, but we don't, don't generate new actions. That's why, for example, in um, any civilization, you won't actually blame an animal for uh, a crime, but you can blame a human being for a crime. Um, Okay, though that's not entirely true. Those who own dogs, you know, when you scold a dog, you you know, say you say naughty boy has done something wrong, and and it's not entirely true that the dog is totally instinctive. Uh, Often, dog owners know the dogs can be can feel guilty. Dogs can be deliberately mischievous. Uh, So all of that. They're not all that different from uh, us as it was made out to be. I'm. Uh, what's going on in my mind is there is this program coming up in New York University, and the title of the program is "Do All Dogs Go to Heaven." It's not about dogs, not about going to heaven. It's about consciousness and life. But the title is very nice, so catchy. Do all dogs go to heaven? All right. Um. So karma is that which which fuels this entire universe. If you want a conventional explanation, but why is all this happening? The answer would be karma. By the way, just by the way, because I've had this discussion with so many people. So everything that happens in our lives is karma. Yes, the broad patterns of it. Um, So when miserable things happen, so we are being punished for our, our karma. We are suffering because of our karma. Advaita Vedanta would say, not exactly. Um, pain and pleasure will come due to karma. But suffering is optional. Suffering is not really due to karma. Suffering is ultimately, we all are non-dualists. We are Advaitins. If you ask, what is suffering due to human suffering? We all say ignorance. We do not know who or what we truly are. And that's the real cause of suffering. Why isn't pain a cause of suffering? Not necessarily. It is in this same world that um, enlightened beings also exist and with unenlightened beings. The unenlightened person, the sentient being who is not enlightened, suffers due to past karma. The enlightened one will not suffer. The same past karma will come and produce pain, uh, produce uh, trouble. But the enlightened person knows, has realized what the truth is, that I am Brahman. From that perspective, it sees it's perfectly all right. So suffering is optional. The effects of karma will keep on coming. Even the effects of karma can be um, mitigated by devotion to God, but that will come a little later. So, yes, I just wanted to make that point. Um, Because people sometimes suffer a lot. Life is full of tragedies, and it's only the very young or the very stupid who think that uh, it's not a problem. Uh, Somebody said, you know, uh, how... My, my 13-year-old um, daughter said, why should I look for overcoming suffering? Why should I try to attain uh, you know um, uh, security beyond suffering, um, you know, unshakable peace and joy? Um, life is full of um, joy and um, pain pain and pleasure. So when joy comes, I accept it. When sorrow will come, I will accept it. And this gentleman wrote, I don't know what to say to her. Uh, I, I, I was thinking... Isn't the answer obvious? She's 13. <laughs> I mean, to be a little brutal, tell her to go to parents who have lost their young child in a terrible accident and tell her to tell those, those parents, oh, you had the pleasure of having a child. Now the child is gone. You have, you should also accept the pain of losing the child. Only a monster would say such a thing. She's, she's 13. So we have this... Uh, this culture we have developed, not only here in the West, it's also in India, of worshipping the uh, the child. Children are children. They are not supposed to be enlightened. They are not supposed to be founts of wisdom. Sometimes they say, say very interesting things. That's all. Don't take it seriously. So, no, there is terrible sorrow in the world. It's, it's silly to say, I accept the pain and accept the pleasure. It's all life. You can't say that. Try saying it to a grieving parent. Try saying it to a person who is a victim of a a terrible crime. No, you can't say such things. There is is terrible suffering in this world. The point is that suffering is optional. Spiritual life, even before enlightenment, it protects you against a great deal of suffering. The results of karma will keep coming, but you are saved from a great deal of suffering Not only just by knowledge, by devotion, by meditation, and above all, by doing good to others, good karma. Karma yoga, bhakti yoga, dhyana yoga, jnana yoga, all of them, all of them protect us against suffering. All right. So this is karma. So the exact language he has used is. all the actions which give rise to you know, the appearance and development of all the sentient beings of the world, basically karma. And I just have to mention in this context, very precisely, if you push it a little hard, it means Vedic karma, but you can expand it, you can take it in a general sense and say all karma, all actions have consequences. And that's what fuels this universe, which is not very far from A purely secular scientific outlook that everything that you see is driven by cause and effect. Then the next verse. Um, Few more terms remain for uh, uh, explanation. And Krishna goes on. Adhibhutam ksharobhava Purushas chadhi Adhiyagyo ahame vatra dehe deha britham Perishable entities are called Adhibhuta. The cosmic being is called adidaiva And I myself am called Adhiyagya in this body, o oh, best of embodied beings. What's going on here? Well, you'll see the power and beauty of studying Vedanta Sara. Before I explain this, just think about what we learned in Vedanta Sara. Um, That one pure consciousness, Brahman, ultimate reality, in connection with the power, associated with the power called Maya, is called Ishwara or God. I'll repeat that. Absolute reality, Brahman, in association with the power of Maya, is called Ishwara, Bhagavan, God, Saguna Brahman, it's the God of religion. And maya is called the, um, the causal state or the causal body. It's a the, it's the seed of the entire universe. It's the cause of the entire universe. Then remember what happened in, um, in Vedanta Sara. From The same Ishwara, God, with the power of maya, produces the subtle elements. I'll just quickly rush through it. I will not explain in detail. It's Vedanta Sara. Produces the subtle elements. And with the subtle elements, uh, combine and they... they, they Uh, produce the subtle bodies, um, intellects, minds, memories, ego, all of this, our internal equipment, down to life itself. So all subtle bodies are produced at the second stage. There's There's a subtle cosmos which is created. And it's not physical things, but let's say just all the minds together. That is called the cosmic mind. You remember the term used? Hiranyagarbha. So the same consciousness plus the causal power of maya Plus the subtle creations of maya that is all minds together, um, including life, mind, life, sense, all the powers of thinking, uh, all the powers of willing, all the powers of feeling. Jnana, Icha, Kriya, Shakti. Three powers of what we call in psychology, the cognitive, affective and cognitive domains. All of these powers of mind, not just individual minds, the entire cosmic mind together. So that's the subtle level of creation. Consciousness plus all causal body plus subtle bodies. Then finally, the third level. What happened? These subtle elements again uh, mixed to create the physical, the gross, the solid. This this world, space, uh, air, fire, water, and all. And the if you remember the um, vedanta sara, fourteen worlds or different universes were created. All the living, the bodies of living beings were created. This entire physical universe was created. And that is consciousness plus causal body, maya, plus cosmic mind, hiranyagarbha, and then plus the physical, entire physical world of living and non-living beings. This is called virat. You remember, it is the same reality. Brahman plus maya is Ishwara. Brahman plus maya plus all subtle bodies is hiranyagarbha. Brahman plus maya Plus all subtle bodies, plus all this physical universe is called virat, the vast. So keep this structure in mind. And next you'll see what, uh, what Krishna said here becomes perfectly understandable. And why all this detail? Well, that's how we are experiencing the world. Just look at the world. Look at yourself. You see yourself with a physical body, right? This uh, this solid body here. And then, when you look inside yourself, you see yourself with a subtle body thoughts, feelings, emotions. Who doesn't have it? We all have it. Um, ideas, memories, life itself, the sensory system. All of this is inside, is subtle. And then you look further back, you um, like we have experience in deep sleep of a blankness, of a seed state. So, there's we, each of us, we have a causal state, we have a subtle state, and a physical state. Right now, we have all three together. You can't have a physical state without a subtle and a causal state. So, right now, you have a physical body, you have a subtle body, and you have uh, a causal body, but you are not the physical, subtle, or causal bodies. You are consciousness itself, which it seems to be limited by these three bodies. The same is true of the entire cosmos. That is the Vedantic idea of God. Now, keep this structure in mind, and now apply it here. You will immediately see what Krishna is trying to say. Perishable entities are called Adhibhuta. He used the term Adhibhuta, the reality of all these physical things. What is the reality of all these physical things? There is consciousness associated with this entire physical universe, Virat. These physical things, he says, they are all impermanent. They are all born. If they are living beings, they are born. Living bodies are born. They develop. They decay and they die. If they are non-living things, They are created, or they appear, and then they are destroyed. They change and they disappear. They are all kshara Kshara means decaying, ever-changing, momentary. Moment to moment, everything passes. All that is born must die. Jatasya hi dhruvo Krishna has said long ago in the Gita. For all that is created, all that is born, destruction and death are certain. These are our bodies. Don't be scared. It's not about you. You, cannot, you, cannot, you are not created and you do not die. So these are the bodies and they will, they will die. They are changing, ever changing and they will die. What are these bodies? This is the physical, the, the gross uh, aspect, the physical aspect of that cosmic reality of Brahman. Then the next one, see. Purushas chadi The cosmic being is called adhidaiva. The second term which Krishna used was adhidaiva. What is that Adhidaiva? It is Hiranyagarbha, which we, we just talked about. It is that consciousness plus all subtle beings together. See, here, one thing has to be explained. If In Vedanta sir, you will see each of the faculties of the mind, like mind, or like the power of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting. Uh, in the Hindu cosmology, each of these powers has a deity behind it. There is the fire god and the sun god and the and Indra, and so on, Uh, they they are all nothing but particular powers, consciousness associated with a particular power. And the collection of all these deities is Hiranyagarbha, the cosmic mind, just as the collection of all your subtle faculties, of your memory, of your intellect, of um, um, your desires, uh, of uh, your sensory powers, all of it together is is your subtle body, your inner, your mind. Similarly, the collection of all the deities in which Hindus worship severally in various ways, all of that together is called Hiranyagarbha. What is Hiranyagarbha? As Vedanta students, we know very well the unlimited consciousness plus the causal power of Maya plus the cosmic mind is called Hiranyagarbha. Literally, what does the word Hiranyagarbha mean? Mean the golden womb or the golden egg. That's what from which the entire universe has come. And this idea of a golden egg, it's there in many cultures of the world. Even in ancient Taoist thought in China, I hear, they have a clear idea that the cosmos emerged from a golden egg. Um, So Hiranyagarbha, it's the cosmic mind. And then the third, so this is called Adhidaivatam that one cosmic being which is the sum total of all the gods you worship literally that's the meaning of adi daivatam what is the sum total of all the gods that we worship hiranyagarbha cosmic mind and then the last one adi yagya literally it means the reality to whom all religious rituals are directed you can fill in the blanks easily now what's the last thing that's remaining we have talked about Virat, we have talked about uh, Hiranyagarbha, now the Ishwara, the uh, God of all religions. Uh, Adhiyagya, and lo and behold, Krishna says, Aham, I. I am the Adhiyagya. Uh, so, Krishna is avatar. He's saying, I'm an incarnation of God. So, God, in Sanskrit, Saguna Brahman, Ishwara, Bhagavan, is Adhiyagya. It is that ultimate reality Brahman in association with Maya or limited by Maya. Um, then same God plus all subtle bodies of all the deities, all the powers is Hiranyagarpa. The name used here is Adhidaivatam. The same God um, with uh, all the physical bodies is called Adhi, Bhutam. And the bodies themselves are perishable, they're continuously coming and going. That's why he says Sharobhava. Virat, God, God Himself is not perishable. Now, there's one point here. In some accounts, you will find this cosmic being, Virat and Hiranyagarbha, they appear and they disappear. That's true. When the universe is created, then the Hiranyagarbha appears and then Virat appears. But in reality, they are not destroyed. Their innermost reality is Ishwara or Saguna Brahman or God, just like, just like when out of deep sleep you emerge into dream state. Your minds, our minds become active and they generate dreams. And from our dream state, we emerge into a waking state. We become aware of a physical body. So the physical body associated the waker and the mind, dreaming mind associated the dreamer. They are in reality. You, the consciousness, who exists in deep sleep. So, my point here is, Virat and Hiranyagarbha, they are not actually destructible. Just their upadhis disappear when the universe is destroyed. When the universe is created, the upadhis, the associated powers and all, they they come into being. And you get these new names, Hiranyagarbha and Virat. But when the universe is destroyed, what remains? Ishwara, God remains. That means Brahman plus Maya. All right, one more point and we are done. Then Krishna says, he just adds without being asked. Dehe Deha Vritam Varaha uh, Atra Dehe. Where am I, this Ishwara, this, this pure consciousness, this God of religion? He says, in the body. Which body? In you. And he says, in the body. And then he says to Arjuna, "O oh, best of embodied ones. So, he calls Arjuna an embodied one and he says, I am in all bodies. I, the Ishwara. This is a Mahavakya. It, it says gives you the identity of Brahman and Jiva. Ishwara, the lord of the universe and we, sentient beings, we are one and the same reality. How are we one and the same reality? How can the ocean and the wave be the same? We are tiny. We are a little wave and God is the entire ocean. But we are the same as water. The ocean is nothing but water. The wave is nothing but water. And don't make the mistake, immediate mistake of jumping to the sort of inevitable conclusion. Oh, yes, God is like this ocean with lots of water. I'm like a wave with little bit of water. No, there's no lots and little. The example fails there. As Brahman, um, you and God are exactly the same reality. But as a sentient being in this vast universe, definitely God is supreme. And we are... Uh, we are devotees. Okay. All of this is the background. Now the advice, important advice, the real theme of the chapter will start with that question. Think of, be centered in God at the time of death. And Krishna will say further, if you are centered in God at the time of death, you will attain liberation. You will attain me. And in order to be centered in me at the time of death, you must be centered in me throughout your life. It is not possible at the point of death. When the voice is choked, when feeble, how will you praise the Lord? When the mind is out of control, I have experienced the sickest that I have been at one time. I, it was felt like dropping into a bottomless well and had no control over my thoughts. They are all vague and scattered. How will you think about God at that point? Uh, and when you are when one is scared or in pain or in shock and you know slowly falling into the complete you know physical uh, death how are you going to love god but it is possible through a lifetime of thinking about god and loving god and being centered in god through the challenges of life once you are centered life is testing us all the time physical illness here somebody says something nasty there is anxiety about um, relationships and money and whatnot. In the midst of all of that, if I can practice holding on to God at the time of death by the grace of God, will be able to hold on to God. Um, so that that is going to be the theme, uh, which we'll start now. Uh, from next time, we'll take a look at that. Now there will be questions. Let's see. Anuradha says, I have a question on Samanadhi Karanam. All right. Please ask. You have to unmute yourself. You have to unmute yourself. Yes. Okay. Namaskaram. Um, Maharaj. In the Brahma Pranam Brahma Habi, we did the Samanadhi Karanam a Badha Samanadhi Karanam. Yes. And in Tattwa we did the Bhagat Tiaga Lakshana. Hmm. Is it because that uh, the Tatwa Masi is between two sentient beings? No. And- um, let me explain. I'll stop you right there. But let me explain the terms a little bit, and then we'll I'll, I'll answer. These are technical terms uh, used in the analysis of the sentence that of the you know the called the mahavakya which expresses the essence of vedanta the identity of the sentient being with with god with with brahman you remember we went through three stages of this analysis Karanyam, Visheshana visheshya bhava and lakshya lakshana bhava so the two things you are saying they belong to two different stages um, so What is what is Karanyam? We must try to prove, first of all, these sentences, which are multi- multiple words. Uh, words refer to things. And there's a word book. It refers to this thing. There's a word glasses. It refers to this thing. So if you have different words, it refers to different things. So the question will be in every sentence, you have multiple words. So you're referring to multiple things. How is it non-duality? How is it that they all different words can refer to one thing? So then we have to show that there are sentences in which multiple words are used to refer to one thing that's called samanadikaranyam. That means having the same locus. All the words they settle down on the same locus, and we want to show that it's Brahman. And this same locus, this can be achieved by multiple ways. There are so many varieties of samanadikaranyam. One is what you mentioned, badhayam samanadikaranyam. That means um, the differences are appearances. And what is common to them is the reality. Uh, so, the same gold, you can make it into a necklace, you mel- melt it, and make it into a ring, you melt it, and make it into a tiara. Ring, necklace, tiara, names and forms, come and go. But literally, it's the same gold all the time. So, it's samanadhi karnam. No? And the, the differences are badhita, that means negated. So that's what we do with uh, tattva masi also. This bhagatyaga lakshana will now show you what are you going to negate and what you are going to keep. We we must show that how is it God, Brahman, Tat, the cosmic reality, you know, we just read um, Adhyayanya, the cosmic reality behind the entire universe is also the Adhibhuta, the, the reality within, Adhyatma, the reality within us, how? Because the universe is an appearance. Cosmic and individual are appearances. You can dismiss them. And the reality underlying them is one and the same. That's what. Um, So is it the same as Badha Samanadi Karanam and Bhagatayagya Lakshana? No. Badha Samanadi Karanam is the first stage of the analysis. That the purpose there is different, the purpose here is different. Okay. That's what the I Three wanted. stages of analysis. Are. The purpose there is to show that all the words refer to one sentence, to one reality. Yeah. And here, the purpose is to show how an implied meaning may be derived from the sentence which will show the identity of the cosmic and the individual. Macrocosm and microcosm. They're one and the same. How? How can the vast and the tiny be one and the same? It's like a dream, for example. In the dream, you are walking around and you have a vast, like a lake and a Central Park and the sky and New York skyline. You're walking there. And somebody comes and tells you, you, this tiny creature and this vast world, you are one and the same. How? When you wake up, you realize, oh, I see. It was this one and the same dreaming mind which dreamt up New York and dreamt up that little guy walking around. But it was neither New York. Nor a little guy, it was neither vast nor little, it was a mind all throughout. And similarly, it's one consciousness which is generating this. So, uh, we need to know the, what Badhi Karanam should be used. Yes, okay. Rick says, Heyam dukha managatam, avert the danger that has not yet come, Patanjali, related to spiritual practice, reducing suffering. Absolutely, Abhijit says. When it is stated in the teaching that Brahman is beyond time, space and causation and in causation part most attractive. There is no free lunch in this world as we are rewarded work hard and vice versa when we are slacking. As in karma is a law for this conventional universe. For coming to Vedanta, experiencing this again and again in one's life makes life appear as a heavy burden. Comes to Vedanta and points out that we are Brahman and beyond this law. What an incredible claim. Absolutely. Swami so, Vedekanta says, Good, good, bad, bad, and none escape the law. Whosoever wears a form wears the chain too. What is the form? This body. Where does this body come from? Just now Krishna said karma. All the karma leads to the production of these bodies and our little lives. So it comes from karma. And what is karma? It's a chain. It's one thing before before the other, and one thing uh, before that, and on and on and on. Um, and so, nobody escapes. Then, then what good is Vedanta? What good is spirituality? Then Vivekananda says, But far beyond name and form is Atman ever free. Know thou art that, Sanyasi bold, say, Om Tat Sat Om. Right. Spirit, mark these words. Spirituality is beyond causation. It breaks the chain of causation. It, that is freedom. It takes us beyond the chain of causation. That is freedom. Often when I talk about Vedanta, I have to mention karma because it's the way of describing this world where we are. People get stuck up there. I'm surprised to see some of the most popular talks I've given is little snippets, some, some of the snippets have been taken out from talks. So there's something about karma somewhere. So it's got a huge number of views. I don't mean it to be important. It's not important. Karma, causation is worldliness. It is this world. It's not a spiritual teaching, actually. It's just a way of describing this world. Getting out of karma is spirituality. So uh, using, being unaware of the law of karma, then you you dash yourself into pieces against it. That's an immoral life, an unethical life. And then karma makes us pay for it. And we learn, learn causality. When we learn causality, we have learned to use the law of karma to our advantage, lead um, lives which recognize the importance of causality in this world. But that's all it's still worldly. It's an, uh, it's an uh, emancipated, it's an enlightened worldly life, a person who understands karma. It's an ignorant and suffering and terrible worldly life, a person who does not understand karma. But spirituality is going beyond that. Both the ignorant worldly life and the enlightened worldly life is going beyond worldly life altogether. Notice, I'll just leave you with this. Think about it. All the four broad paths of spiritual practice, Jnana Yoga, Raja Yoga, Bhakti Yoga and Karma Yoga, they are all about transcending karma, breaking karma, going beyond causality. Notice, Karma Yoga. It's exactly the opposite of what we understand karma to be. Karma is, I do something, I expect something in return. Karma yoga is I'll keep on doing good. I don't want, just don't want anything in return. Let all good come to you. Let all good come to the world. I don't need anything. Second, I mean, don't refuse your pay packet. You need that to live in this world. But you are not doing karma. Uh, You know, it's, it's you are not seeking fulfillment in the world through what the world can give you. You are rather giving to the world, not taking. That's the attitude. So that's totally breaking the, the law of karma. Then the bhakti. Bhakti takes you beyond karma. I surrender without any reserve. I love unconditionally. Look, when you say unconditionally, that's beyond karma. Conditioning, conditioned love is karma. Unconditioned love. Uh, Swami Vivekananda says the best life is um, un- uh, unconditional love and service-free. Uh, he says, love without any conditions whatsoever and service-free. Service without any expectation of return. He says, that's the, 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 that's the best life one could have. And Swami Vivekananda says, let, illu- let dreams go, let all illusions go. And you awaken into the realization, your Brahman. But if you cannot, he says, at, at this moment, maybe we cannot. He says, but if you cannot, then dream but better dreams. If you want to dream, but go on dreaming, you are helpless, you can't stop dreaming right now, then dream better dreams. What are better dreams? He says, he doesn't say unconditional love, he just says eternal love and service free. For whom? For everybody. I make no conditions about, about love, art, to service. What a beautiful life that is. That's the philosophy of life. Everybody can have that. So, devotion can take us beyond causality. Meditation can take you beyond, beyond causality. And Advaita Vedanta is, of course, beyond causality. So it's a very good point. Causality is worldliness. Spirituality takes you beyond causality. Samrat says, Tagore reflects on this last moment of life just before death when one is able to be one with God. Oh, yes, I don't remember the poem. Maybe you can bring it up next time. Jennifer asks, can we feel confident holding on to truth is the same as holding on to God, Ishwar, in terms of results? Um, Holding on to truth means... Being truthful in our lives in that sense or holding on to the highest the non-dual Advaitic truth that I am Brahman? Is, is this what you're asking? So otherwise, I'll go off on a different track. Oh, the highest truth. In that case, because you've raised this, it's good that you raised it. Somebody may ask this question. Fine, you're talking about thinking about God, you know, it could be Krishna, could be Christ, could be Vishnu, could Whatever. Um, in whichever form, uh, whichever religion you think about God all your life and at the end of life think of God and that will take you to God and that will be a liberation, a liberation. How does all this relate to Advaita Vedanta? So what does Advaita, non-dual Vedanta, what does it think about all this? So uh, what Advaita says is this. This is, the technical term is Saguna Brahma Upasana, worship of God. And that is the theme for these six chapters, chapter 7 to chapter 12. And you're going to get a lot of this now, devotion to God, love of God. So this is love of God, and this continuous thought of God, prayerful, devotional, is very useful for preparing the mind for Vedantic knowledge. So a a consistent worship of God, then you come to Vedanta, which is Shravana Manana Nididhyasana. You immerse yourself in the Vedantic teaching, you understand what it is being taught and stay with it, stay centered in it till you become real till you realize I am Brahman. Then that is called Sadhya Mukti. Mukti literally means instant liberation here and now. There's no question of waiting till the time of death and something will happen after death. No. Whatever has to be done is done here and now. You realize you are absolutely free. Then this does not apply to you anymore. This is an advaitic idea that it does not apply to you anymore. At the point of death, you have to sit and think about God, and by the grace of God, you will be freed after death. It so what happens? Then what is Krishna saying here? Uh, Advaita will say if you have not got advaitic realization, this is second best. And this this is sacrilegious to speak that way to talk about meditating on God and and uh, um, you know surrendering to God is second best, but uh, this is the two terms are used. In classical Advaita Vedanta, Sadhya Mukti, immediate liberation. And that comes when you realize Aham Brahmasmi. You get it and that's done. There's nothing more you have to do. You cannot, it becomes choiceless then. You can't take it back anymore. No back season. <laughs> but the other one is called Krama Mukti. Krama means sequence. Sequential liberation. Devotion to God consistently throughout this life at the point of death. By the grace of God, you get you go to this, you know, the highest heaven, the Christian heaven, the Islamic heaven, the, the Vaishnava Vaikuntha, the Shakta Devi Loka, the Shaivite Kailasha, um, the Buddhist pure land. And you live in that beatific state until you attain uh, the realization that uh, I am Brahman. And then you are liberated forever. So, this is sequential liberation according to uh, Advaita Vedanta. If, if you take a completely Advaitic perspective of all this, Advaita would, would say that yes, have deep devotion to God, cultivate it throughout your life, and um, immerse yourself in Vedantic Shavana, Manana, and If you realize, if we make the breakthrough, it's done. Uh, if we do not, this devotion to God that you have practiced all your life, you have led a moral life, you have led a devotional life, and you have hold on, hold on to God, that will serve you at the point of death, and God will help you from that point onwards. That's also liberation, because you will not come back to this world again. So that's also liberation. But that's not the end for you as a limited individual. You still are a limited individual, but you will be uh, you know, in heaven, in the beatific presence of God, and then uh, liberation will come for you. right? So that would be the Advaitic perspective. What would it mean, Shweta says, what would it mean to be centered in Advaitic teaching? Uh, do we need to hold on to awareness and keep rejecting the mind whenever it rises in the form of thoughts? No. Uh, centered in Advaitic teachings, there is a term, Jnana nishta. Jnana Nishta means, um, we were a seeker till now. And once you make the breakthrough, you begin to see that I am Raman; It's a fact, choicelessly so. Then you stay with it. Stay with it uh, till all kind of contrary tendencies are overcome. Contrary tendencies may be set up by our past samskaras. So there is a period when you, even after enlightenment, you need to stay with it. What will happen then? Then that enlightenment will, will transform into jivan mukti, enlightened while living. So there's a gap. The moment you are enlightened, it doesn't mean that you are this jivanmukta, Mukta, which is the, what Vedanta is aiming at. If there are other con- contrary tendencies in the mind, they'll keep tugging at you. They'll keep, um, the American word is there, messing around with you. <laughs> so you cannot stop um, spiritual practice at that point. You have to be centered. And centered means you keep on the Shravanamana Dhyasana, especially the nididhyasana, And during periods of nididhyasana. You um, you see that you are not the mind, and that would include uh, you know going beyond the the thoughts arising in the mind, shutting down the thoughts arising in the mind. If you are doing a Vedantic nididhyasana or even yogic meditation, these are very helpful. Um, remaining still in that awareness that I am awareness for long periods of time. All of these nididhyasana practices. This is called jnana nishtha. That which starts as shraddha. Shraddha means faith. Now you, you don't need faith anymore because you see it. It's a fact. But you need to stay with it now. The shraddha becomes uh, nishtha. Shraddha becomes nishtha. Good. Let's wrap it up now. Oh. Shanti 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 Hari Tatsat Shri Ram, Ram, Krishna Ram, rupa, Ram, yeah. One more thing I'd just like to say, if one has a Vedantic breakthrough, you know, I realize I am Brahman. Does that mean then I don't need to be centered in God at the time of my physical death I can just have a party and, like, you know, I can sit and watch a Mickey Mouse cartoon, it doesn't matter. Yes, it doesn't matter, but that's not, when you look at the lives of saints, enlightened ones, that's not how they behave. So, if you look at how Vivekananda passed, Ramakrishna passed, and all of the great saints, at the time of death, they regarded it as a sacred moment. Vivekananda literally passed the way Krishna has talked about, sitting. It was in meditation, selected the time, centered his mind, and then left the body. So, an enlightened person, Jivan Mukta, will not—it uh, will not be expecting a result of liberation through this process. But this would be the most natural way for a Jivan Mukta to pass. Is it compulsory? No. The Jivan Mukta, the enlightened one, is free of all compulsion. So there are verses which say that. You may sit in meditation, center your mind on God and pass, let go of the body. Or a Jivan Mukta, may, the body may go into a coma and pass away. Jivan Mukta is not affected thereby at all. So that point has to be kept in mind.